Hello. I've been called many things in, the, in my time. Uh, I've been called Mr. Mayton. I've been called Sir once or twice. Uh, on my birth certificate, you'll see the names Timothy Mayton, no middle name. And then I've had some less than flattering names, particularly in my school days, shall we call them cruel days, uh, Car Doors and FA Cup. I'll let you use your imagination. But to my family and to my friends, I'm Tim. And you can call me Tim. This is the second of our Exodus series, and today we're looking at Exodus chapter 3. And I'm going to read the first 15 verses of the chapter, and you can read the rest on your own. It says this, Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I'll go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face, because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Hamorites, Perizzites, Hivites and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me. And I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now, go. I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you. And this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Moses said to God, Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. The name you shall call me from generation to generation. Father, I pray as we look at this passage, you reveal yourself again to us afresh. Help us to understand more about who you are and how we can relate to you. 
in Jesus' name. Amen. I find this passage both tragic and terrifying and strangely reassuring. I mean, it is tragic. In Exodus chapter 1, we saw descriptions of terrible oppression. The pharaohs had built their empire on the back of Israelite slavery for decades, perhaps even centuries. In Exodus 2, we had this glimmer of hope, a baby. Moses had miraculously escaped infanticide, possibly the only surviving boy of his generation. But then snatched by this doting princess who got what she wanted and brought up in the palace and in privilege. We were waiting. And by the time we get to Exodus 3, it would appear that all hope is lost. Exodus 2 was 80 years ago. Eight decades and nothing much really has come about to show for it. Moses is now wanted for murder and has been living on the run for 40 years and we now find him looking after some sheep in the wilderness in a far-off land. Proverbs 13.12 says that hope deferred makes the heart sick. Eight decades is a long time. If there was any occasion when the heart was sick, it might have been right now. But I think also this was a terrifying moment for Moses and I kind of sympathise with him. Twice at least he was scared out of his wits. Firstly, God appeared to him in this burning bush or I should probably say this non-burning bush which was the strange sight that drew Moses to look a little bit closer. But once he realised he was looking at God, Not only did he he kick off his sandals, as he was instructed to do, but he hid his face in fear of his life, and rightly so. And secondly, because God gave him a terrifying task. He had to go to Pharaoh, the most powerful dictator in the world, who'd also got some beef with Moses. And he had to bring the Israelites out of Egypt, possibly the largest mass migration of people in history, at least to that point, and one that would cripple the Egyptian economy. It's like being asked to go to Putin and tell him to stop drilling for gas and oil. It was a terrifying task. And already, perhaps, for us today, there are some familiar emotions. There is tragedy everywhere we look, in the world, our news keeps reporting it day in, day out. War in Ukraine, earthquake again in Turkey, oppression of the Uyghurs, sexual exploitation in places like Kenya, in the tea farms, and even amongst UK policemen. We also record, at least here in Europe, the decline of the church. There's tragedy. And God has also given us, the church, a pretty terrifying, scary task of taking the world for Jesus, of transforming society, of planting churches and reaching nations. That's an awesome job. And even in our own lives, such as mine, I've known moments of fear and trembling as I felt God lead me into some things. So I was once asked to to lead a, a small group of late teens and early 20s uh, for a discipleship year in South London. I was terrified. I was uh, an unconfident, uh, introverted, 20-something, and this fell out of my comfort zone. 
I remember also shortly after that being asked to lead the youth work uh, for a weekend that a church was having. I didn't know the church. I'd never done any youth work and there was not much time to prepare. I even remember phoning my mum the night before just out of an expression of fear, I expect. I remember getting a promotion at work and they asked me to jointly lead a team of 12 people more than I'd ever line managed before, and to oversee and have responsibility for a budget of millions of pounds. I felt a little bit out of my depth right then. Even when I was offered this role here at Everyday Church, I must admit, I went a bit weak at the knees. But then again, God sometimes, often, prompts me to, to share my faith with a friend, with a colleague, with a neighbour, with a, with, with, a, with a relative, and... I find that very scary too. So I don't know about you, but I certainly need a lot of reassurance. But I'm comforted at least by the fact that there are many people in the Bible who clearly needed reassurance as well. Moses being one of them. Gideon also. He said, I'm from the weakest family. Jeremiah said, I'm far too young for this. So at least biblically, I'm in good company. But I'm grateful also that God appears to have a track record of reassuring the people that he calls. Graciously, patiently, repeatedly, gently reassuring them that he's with them, he's called them, and that we can trust him. And so I'm really keen to highlight from this passage three ways in which God reassures Moses. We're going to look at God's senses. We're going to look at God's presence and God's name, all of which come in this passage. And I I hope you too find them equally reassuring in your context, in whatever God is calling you into, as I have found for myself. So let's look at God's senses. In verse 7, we hear that the Lord says, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers and I am concerned about their suffering. And I think it's encouraging to know that God sees and hears and knows what's going on in the world and in our own individual lives. God sees. We see in verse 7 that God sees the misery of the oppressed. But he also sees the methods of the oppressors in verse 9. And in verse 16... Uh, God tells Moses to tell the Israelites, I have watched over you and have seen what has been done to you in Egypt. The word watched there, I'm told, um, is one that would be used to describe a shepherd who who takes close look at his sheep and their health. Or a commanding officer who would go around and inspect the line of his troops. We're told from this passage that God hears Also, in verse 9, God acknowledges the cry of the Israelites has reached me. Now, they weren't necessarily crying out to God in prayer and lament. It doesn't say that. And actually, it seems that faith in God amongst the Israelites was at an all-time low at this point. Nonetheless, God hears their cries of distress and despair. And God knows. God is more than an inanimate camera and microphone simply recording the facts. He has a mind. He has a heart. There is judgment. There is compassion. There is emotion going on in our God. He knows what's going on. He knows some of the barriers to come. He knows Pharaoh's going to object to this. But he also knows 
how he will overcome. And lastly, God cares. And he cares so much that he wants to get involved. In verse 8 we read, So God says, I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. What a wonderful metaphor for a prosperous, uh, joyous place. You know, we might have wanted to, to have seen God move a lot sooner than these 80 years. And I'm sure the Israelites did it at the time as well. But God is moved, not just in his spirit, but in his actions. And he does go. And in his perfect timing, he personally gets involved. He's prepared, if you like, to roll up his sleeves and to come down to earth and do the rescue. Of course, this is most perfectly and fully echoed in Jesus. Having seen, having heard the tragic mess that our sinners made in this world, God cared enough to send his son, Jesus, as one of us into the world to save and rescue us, to rescue us from sin and death and hell and to rescue us into righteousness, life and heaven and eternity of honey and milk flowing, if you like, using that metaphor. But this can also be echoed, I believe, in our lives, in us. We have seen and heard the effects of earthquakes, the devastation of war, the abuse of women, the mental health crisis, the modern day slavery, the lostness of souls, and God cares so much for those that he gets personally involved by sending you and me with his presence to the rescue. You see, God is a sensing God. And I think knowing that reassures me If nothing else, it gives me a basis for prayer with faith and expectation. It gives me a reason to get myself involved as God leads and directs. God's senses. But secondly, God's presence. Having heard the task he was set, Moses reacts with a little bit of a, wait, what? And uh, he's... He raises five objections, actually, in total. Two in this chapter, three in the chapter to come. Everything from I'm unfit, I'm ignorant, to I'm ineffective, I'm untalented, and I'm unwilling. And in his patience and grace, again, God gently uh, addresses each of those objections, but maybe not always as we'd expect. And Moses' first two questions are these. Who am I, in verse 11, and who are you? to God in verse 13. To say that Moses felt insecure would be, I think, an understatement. I know as as we read Exodus, it's quite clear to us, even if we don't know the end of the story yet, surely Moses is the guy. I mean, he's got all the credentials in the way the story's been set up. He's had this miraculous birth story and background. He is arguably uniquely able to mediate between the Egyptians and the Hebrews. He is listed in Hebrews 11 as a man of faith, even 40 years ago when he, and he ran away from, uh, from Egypt without fearing Pharaoh, we're told. 
And we sense that Moses realized he had a call of God on his life. He tried to get involved in helping his fellow Israelites, but yes, it had all gone wrong. And then you have to think, Moses, have you not read your Bible? You're a shepherd. Uh, Again and again, through the Bible, God seems to use shepherding, looking after sheep as a training ground for leadership. But his sense of identity was shattered. Not only by the size of the task before him, but I think also by the knowledge of his past failures. It's interesting that God doesn't directly answer Moses' question, but neither does God deny Moses' inadequacy or change anything about Moses or any of the circumstances. But God does promise his presence. Let's read verse 12. God said, I will be with you. I think this is deeply reassuring for Moses then and for us now, I I trust as well. You see, success was not going to depend on Moses, on his ability or even his identity, but on the one in whom he identified with. God would be with him, and that is all that mattered. And rather than looking at himself, he was being encouraged here to look at God. Jesus has promised us the same thing. When he commissioned his disciples with the ominous task in Matthew 28, he said this, Therefore go, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, And before they had time to object with a what, wait, who, me? (laughs) Jesus continues, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. You see the completion of the Great Commission in all its variety, in all its diversity around the world is not dependent on who we are, but is dependent on who is with us. I find that deeply reassuring. And then thirdly, let's look at God's name. The promise of God's presence, I guess, explains Moses' second question. Well then, who are you if you're the one going to be with me? And I think Moses might have been convinced that God was on his side, but he was going to need to convince his Israelites too. And going back after 40 years of being on the run and not being seen or heard of since, with a bit of a dark cloud over him, wouldn't have been easy. I think he anticipated a few tough conversations with them. And so far, all he could say is, look, look, our dad's God, and their dad's dad God, yeah? He spoke this. But the Israelites, who had known God by various titles, may have needed more convincing. And Moses knew that. And Moses was asking really for something deeper. A a deeper, more personal revelation of who God was. He wanted to know something about the meaning of God's name. And this time, God gave him a straight answer. In verse 14 we read, God said to Moses, I am who I am. This 
is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. Now we know names are important. They are significant in the Bible. They have meaning in the biblical examples. And by sharing his name with Moses, God was revealing something about his very nature, something of his essence and character. I am who I am. I mean, it's a bit tricky for us to understand. It's a bit tricky for us even to translate. Not least because it's a verb uh, based on the verb to be. And it covers all tenses, past, present and future, which is why in your Bible you might have a footnote which says you can also translate this, I will be who I will be. I guess also I was who I was. Let me try to give you a brief explanation of some of this and then I'll really want to return to why I find this so reassuring. I think this name, I am who I am, would have resonated a little bit more with the Israelites then than it perhaps does with us today. They, I believe, already knew God as Yahweh. In Hebrew, the word Yahweh sounds like and may have been based on the same root word as I am, the verb I am. God is first referred to as Yahweh right at the beginning of the Bible in Genesis chapter 2. And by Genesis chapter 4, we have some people calling on the name of Yahweh. In other words, worshipping the Lord. These, this was in the days of Enosh, Adam and Eve's grandson. Now in Hebrew, Yahweh is spelt with four consonants. In English, Y, H, W and H. It's because they didn't have a written form for vowels. They just didn't write vowel sounds down. I'm told that the word Yahweh appears over 6,800 times in the Old Testament. But for the Hebrews, not writing vowel sounds down was not much of a problem while words were still in use, in common use, spoken use. However the Jews became increasingly nervous about saying the name Yahweh out loud. They were fearful of inadvertently perhaps breaking the third commandment in Exodus 20, which is, do not take my name, Yahweh, in vain. Do not misuse it. Now, there may have been priests who would utter the name Yahweh in temple worship, but at least since AD 70, uh, when the temple was last destroyed, it's not been used at all. And how it heard, the pronunciation of the word, was lost. Yahweh, I guess, is our best guess. Now, early on, the Israelites also began calling God Adonai. They did that instead because they felt that was a bit safer, but still very respectful and reverential. Now, Adonai is derived from the word sovereignty, meaning Lord or Master. And it, it's used a lot in the Old Testament. That's why, if you've got an English Bible, which some of you may have, some of you may not, you find that the word Adonai is translated and written as the word Lord. Capital L, lowercase ord. But when it comes to the word 
Yahweh, it's written Lord. Uh, capital L, small capitals, Ord. Uh, I don't know what it does in other languages, forgive me. And then you may have heard of the name Jehovah. Now this is an alternative pronunciation for Yahweh, which was created by mixing the, the four consonants in Yahweh, Y-H-W-H in English, and the four vowel sounds in Adonai, and you get something like Jehovah or something similar. Now there you go, that's my best summary of these different words, where they come from and how they've evolved. But let's go back to what God said in this moment to Moses. I am who I am. I mean, that is profound. That is mysterious. But it did help Moses convince the Israelites when he went back and tried to tell them this is what God was saying. I love this quote from Terry Virgo in his recent book, God's Treasured Possession. He says, God's name is full of impenetrable mystery, but full of assurance and total adequacy. Uncreated, unthreatened, untainted, self-defining. God, in all his sovereignty, would provide the guarantee to the Exodus story's success. It is profound, it is mysterious. Maybe we'll never fathom the depths of it. But what a name, I mean, who'd have thought of it? God did. And I find it, again, deeply reassuring in a number of ways. Firstly, God has a name, and he's prepared to share it with us. That means God is personal and is inviting close relationship. As I say, I'm Mr. Mayton in formal settings, but I'm Tim to my friends. And God has given us his personal name in place of titles. Secondly, I'm reassured that means there is something, someone in fact, in this universe that is fixed and reliable and true and constant. He is the Lord. And he is who he is. He is the ultimate reality. There's nothing anyone can do to change him or to redefine him or to mould him in our own image. He is completely independent, yet he's completely dependable. He is consistent and unchanging. Unchangeable, in fact. And in a constantly changing and fragile world, that's reassuring. And then thirdly, I know these days in our culture, particularly at the moment, some are attempting to define themselves or, or choose their own identity based on preference, perhaps based on feelings. However, my casual observation is that appears generally to be leading to more anxiety, more depression and more insecurity in our society. Only God can define himself. And he's done that. And it's once and for all. Therefore, I think the best that we can do is to find our sense of identity in relation to him. And when we do that, I believe we find security and significance and 
assurance. Verse 7, if you look at that, is the first of many times in the Bible that God calls the Israelites my people. If we're people of faith in Jesus, we too are his people. That's who we are. And it's what we'll get unpacked as we look through the rest of Exodus together. You see, God's answers to Moses on that day, to his two first questions, were, were a call to faith, to believe that God was with him and to believe that God could be trusted. And he's calling you and me to that same faith now. I think as we go through this series, we'll discover again and again that the great parallel to the Exodus story is that of Jesus, of his sinless life, of his death on the cross, of his resurrection from the dead. And in John's Gospel, we're reminded again and again that Jesus identified himself as the I Am, as Yahweh. John 8.58 says, Very truly I tell you, says Jesus, before Abraham was, was born, I am. I am. At which point, the onlookers picked up stone to try and stone him to death. It explains why many of the early Christians were martyred because they claimed Jesus Christ is Lord. I think this should compel us to worship, but I think also, I trust I've drawn it out, it should give us, I think, a deep reassurance for those who believe because God is who he says he is. We can be sure of that. And if, it, if God saw and heard and cared and got involved back in Exodus 3, he's going to be the same today. He hears and cares and gets involved. And he will again tomorrow. If the Lord was with Moses then, then we can be assured he will be with us today and tomorrow. He is the great I am in whom we can know personally, and in whom we can trust completely. Whatever he asks of us, whatever he calls us to. Let me pray. Yahweh, Jesus, Lord, we thank you that you are who you are. That gives us so much reassurance. Help us to believe that today and tomorrow in all the things that we might find scary or challenging, in all the ways in which you might call us to serve the hurting and the suffering. In Jesus' name, amen.